Great. Well, thank you so much for coming out uh, tonight. It's such a privilege to be here with you. And um, just overwhelmed by the sense of the presence of God in these meetings. Um, if you've never been to one of our leave, uh, meetings um, uh, in person, I encourage you to come. It's such a pr- tremendous time to come together with the body of Christ and worship God. And I want to be speaking on the presence of God, but before I do that, I'm going to ask my beautiful wife to come and share something with you that she shared with me. And uh, here we go. Hello, friends. We were away last week. Uh, Mike and I took a few days out and we went to Telegraph Cove, which was the first time. And one of the reasons I went, we went up there was I wanted to see whales. I wanted to see the orcas. And I heard that there were humpbacks and whales that frequent that area. And every evening, we would go and sit there from 4 o'clock till about 6.30, scanning the horizon, looking and waiting and wondering, just to see a plume of water or just to see an orca's fin. We did that night after night after night. And I saw nothing but water and beautiful mountains and the cry of an eagle. I saw a lot of bear scat, but I didn't see a bear. But still, every night, we would go in the evening with anticipation of waiting to see an orca or a humpback. And the one evening, the Lord said to me, Deborah, I see you're hungry to see a whale. And I see that you spend these hours every single day. I am here with you. And I just felt that conviction of the Holy Spirit where I have not spent or taken that time set apart to, Holy Spirit, I just want to hear your voice. I'm always on the fly. I'm always running around. Yes, I pray. I pray in the mornings. I'm worshiping. I'm listening to the word. Listening to the, and I I do believe that we do hear God's voice. But where we actually just come and just sit. Two hours. Sometimes I was there for three hours sitting on a rock. Needless to say how your bottom feels. But that didn't matter because I was so desperately wanting to see a whale. And yet Jesus says, I am here with you. That he is a good shepherd and that his sheep know his voice. In Revelation, it talks about he stands at the door and he knocks. And when we open up our hearts, he's there with us. We don't leave his presence empty-handed. Every time we come into the presence of God, just like tonight, he graces us with his majesty. We are forever changed. And I believe, church, that these times are unprecedented. We've never walked this walk before. Lots of challenges, lots of things that we've had to readjust in our lives personally and corporately. There's lots of, oh, what's going to happen? Do you know, Jesus never, ever keeps us in the lurch. 
May we spend, and it's almost like an, an urgency, I just feel, that we would take time out to set aside whether, it, whether you're an early morning person or if you're a midday person or an evening person. Even if you say, well, you know, my, my schedule is so full. Yes, I, everyone's schedules are full, but to actually make that little time available in your calendar. If it's even half an hour, just, Holy Spirit, I just thank you for your presence. Speak for your servant is listening. Just as Samuel Lord, speak, I am listening. So Father, I just thank you. I thank you that when we come into your presence, we are forever changed, Lord. I thank you that you are gentle. I thank you that you are gracious. I thank you for your compassion, Lord. And that, Father, even when we do just come and sit at your feet, it is not time wasted. Thank you for the beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit. And Father, may we be ever attentive. May we not grow weary in doing good. But Father, I just pray for a passion for your name, a passion for your ways to rise up again. At first love, Lord God, we we will just want to spend more and more and more and more time with you, Lord. So, Father, I just thank you for your peace, and I thank you for your love. I just thank you for your presence that's here with us. In Jesus' beautiful and powerful and wonderful name, and we say amen. 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 Thank you. Thanks, Deb. An amazing word. Goes on very well with my message. Um, She only mentioned that to me a few, half an hour before we arrived, and I thought it would be good for her to share that and... uh, Yeah, it was a wonderful time there. We are blessed to live on this island for sure. And um, over the past while, I've just been sensing more and more of the manifest presence of God in our midst and um, where we are. And God knocking hard on the doors of our hearts. Um, He wants to fellowship with us for sure. And um, as a result of that, I've been... Looking at Ezekiel 47, um, the, where Ezekiel speaks of the river of God, we'll look at it, and it's um, such an amazing picture of God, the river of God. Jesus uh, speaks about the rivers of living water that will flow from us in John 7, and he says, by this he meant, meant, meant the spirit that we would later receive when he was glorified, and um, yeah, just a wonderful sense of God with us, um, but wanting to, for us, uh, keep on getting this, for us to go deeper still. And uh, we'll read a little bit from uh, Ezekiel 47, 1 to, to 5, but I encourage you to um, go and read it in the context and maybe study it a bit more. But uh, Ezekiel 47, 1 to 5 says this, the man brought me back, this is in a vision that is Ezekiel is having. He says, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me through the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. 
As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits. Then he led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through the water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and then led me through the water that was up to my waist. He then measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. I love this picture of the river of God as he leads us deeper still into his presence. I have this picture of Jesus holding our hand like a father with a child on the side of a river and the child being a little bit nervous, but gently but surely walk him in, into the river. I love the fact that it's a thousand cubits and it's not one or two steps. It's not like we are walking with God and we walk off and all of a sudden we need deep, the next step waist deep and then uh, um, over our heads. And, um, but it's a gradient thousand cubits, slowly but surely, he's taken us deeper and deeper. And every time we spend time in his presence, we have an opportunity to go deeper still with him. See, God uh, sent Jesus so that we could have relationship with him. It's an amazing picture. But the reality is that some of us here may feel that we're on dry ground or ankle deep or knee deep or even waist deep or deep enough to swim. But it doesn't matter where we're at. Every single one of us is at a different place. The point is, he's wanting to take us deeper, deeper still. So if you're feeling dry today, it's just that first step. And wherever you are, and in fact, somebody on dry land could um, progress more than somebody that is waist deep and is uh, not moving on. You see, I believe he is calling us to humble ourselves, to trust him, to let go and let God be the God of our lives, the true God, where we, in a sense, are in over our heads, but safe in his arms, and many of us feel like that. See, the only way we're going to run this race, the word of God says, is by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. There's so much stuff around us, and so on. But it's Jesus is the answer for all of us. And he says he's going to shake that which cannot be shaken. So that which cannot be shaken will remain. And the only thing that cannot be shaken is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this is a part, uh, I, I think to me, of recalibrating our lives and recommissioning us to realize what is actually really important to us. You see, he's wanting us to humble ourselves. A humility that enables us to seek the face of God and not simply his hand. It's something that I've struggled with as a pastor all the time because we have a couple of hundred people in this church and obviously stuff happens and, and often we get the calls or we get to hear, hear about it and it's a real privilege to become alongside of people. But often when I'm going to the presence, God, I feel I've got this list, even if it's not for me, it's for others. Of God, please this, Lord, we need this, bless us, help this person. Lord, we pray for unity in the church and so on and so on. And by, before I know it, I've spent time with him. 
but it's pretty much been a one-way conversation. How many of you know a one-way conversation with somebody is not really a good relationship? And so it's, it's not only seeking his hand. God is our provider. He says, don't worry about that stuff. Seek me. Seek me first, my kingdom, and I will add those things. And so often we're seeking the stuff and worrying about the stuff. But he says, don't worry. You know, you're worth more than a bird and I feed them all every day. You see, humility creates an environment where unity thrives. And unity, according to Psalm 133, releases the commanded blessing of God. And how many of you know we, we need the commanded blessing of God, not only on ourselves, but on our nation? A humility that enables us to see the dignity and worth of every person. And as a result, we shift our focus from ourselves to him and those around us. It enables us to truly live our lives for the benefit of others. That's why Jesus saved us. He sees the fields wide unto harvest, like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and afraid. Can you imagine? Can, I can't. I've been serving God for many, many years going through life without Jesus Christ, without knowing him, going through the valley of the shadow of death and not having Jesus with you, things like that. These are desperate people. They are lost, and Jesus died for them, and it's us who's got to reach out to them. And our light shines, Jesus says in Matthew 25, that it shines through our good deeds. Let your light so shine so that they may see your good deeds. And as we reach out and begin to live for the benefit of others, God looks after us. Matthew 5 says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and he'll add everything we need. My transformation is of that is always being. He says, Mike, you look after my business, and I'll look after yours. Isn't that an amazing, <laughs> amazing partnership? where he brings 100% and we bring zero to the table. In Matthew 23, 11 to 12, Jesus, Jesus teaches us an important uh, kingdom principle. You can look it up. It's, but the principle is that, is that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Why is that so? Because pride is about self, self-effort, my stuff, my stature on all of that, and humility. So pride glorifies self, but humility glorifies God. When somebody asks us, wow, how, how are you doing? Well, gee, that's an amazing. Often we take the glory ourselves, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be, in a sense, proud in a good way of achievements, but at the end of the day, it's all because of God and his mercy and grace upon our lives. This church is here as the planting of the Lord to display his, his um, glory through us. You see, in, in 2 Chronicles seven thirteen to 15, I remember last year um, before COVID, I, sp I preached on this 
this passage three, two or three times differently. And, and often my pressure is, often God is saying, Mike, I want you to revisit stuff, revisit stuff. And it's, it's such a pressure because people say, oh, good message, it's the third time I've heard it. And you say, oh, no, <laughs> maybe too many times. But maybe it's because we need to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us. And I'm a slow learner. <laughs> it sometimes takes me a while. But uh, this 2 Chronicles 7, 13 to uh, 15, God gives the key to the restoration of a, na- of a nation, to the healing of a nation. And it is not in the hand of governments. It's not in the hand of the economy or anything. It is in the hands of his people, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this passage, he simply asks us to do four things. And if we do that and we put those in place, he will bring healing to a nation. We're looking to Ottawa. Others are looking to Washington or wherever it is. And I don't really mind who is in control because at the end of the day, God puts everybody in place. And we are the body of Christ. And we have authority in Jesus Christ to make tremendous change, and the change often happens under pressure, where people are, are falling apart. That's when they look to God. It's like the book of Judges. People lose their way. His people lose their way, and they run in a mock and all doing something, and so God shakes the nation, and the nation goes to the knees, and God uh, is so gracious that he comes through. And uh, just as he's come through and they're prospering, they, they run amok again. <laughs> it's crazy. And yet God is gracious and compassionate. He's always there for us, and he always comes through. And he says this, and this is God speaking, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, we know what happens if it doesn't rain for a long time, even in this beautiful country with all the water. And command locusts to devour the land and send a plague amongst my people. Who's sending this? Not the devil. God is sending these. And he sends it to get our attention, I believe, my attention. And he says this, if my people who are called by my name will do these four things. Number one, humble themselves. Because when we humble ourselves, we automatically begin to pray. Because we understand that in our self-effort, we can do nothing. And humility is not thinking of ourselves worse. It's thinking of others better. (laughs) That's all it is. But the first thing that happens when we humble ourselves, we begin to pray. You know, if you've been in a serious issue in your life, my wife is had a, two transplants. And I tell you, in those times, we prayed and prayed like never before. Many of you here did too, and I want to thank you for that. I want that fervor in times of prosperity <laughs> as much as in the bad times. And command locusts to devour the land and send a plague amongst the people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves will begin to pray, and will seek my face. 
face-to-face, a, a personal, intimate relationship with God. That's why God sent Jesus. So that relationship broken by our sin could be restored in and through Jesus Christ. That's the reason why Jesus came. We might talk about it again a bit later. He says, when you do that, when you, my people, who are my people? We are the church of the living God. It's not the people out there. It's not the governments. We often get the governments we deserve. And I'm not saying we've got a good or bad government, so please don't misrepresent me. Uh, in that, we pray for our leaders. Paul said, pray for those in authority. And our authority, our leader happens to be Justin Trudeau. And so we pray for him. We want God to put people around him that give him wisdom and all of those kind of things. We want to, God to bless him. Because if he's blessed, we're blessed. It's interesting that both Joseph and Daniel serve very evil, evil leaders. But God put them there, and they had the favor of the king, and they were able to advise them, advise them, and what they should do. So I don't want to speak more about that, but guys, too often we're speaking too much about even other people's nations and all of that. God, we want them to be blessed. Send your reign, Lord God, this reign of your spirit, Lord God. It's not going to be a change of government that's going to do it. It's a change that has to start in the hearts of the bodies of believers where we humble ourselves and pray and pray and pray and pray. And then he begins to hear, oh, there's my boy. He's on his knees. And I look up and there's his smiling face, smiling at me. And he begins to heal the nation. That's it, four things. And he says, now my eyes, when you do, will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. 1 Peter 5, speaking of humility, uh, 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 7, we, we, Peter, the great apostle, is uh, nearing the end of his life. And he writes these two letters very important letters, especially for leaders. And um, speaks of the consequence of pride. Something that Peter, as a young disciple, really struggled with. He had to be put in his place a few times. But over the years, he obviously had been humbled by circumstance because you read these letters and they has got such a heart of compassion uh, when he's writing these, these letters, very different to the one that said he had never denied Christ and ran away. And the transformation that happened in Peter, I believe, getting off the, the track a little bit here, was that when Jesus went looking for him, he had gone fishing. And he found him. And Peter jumped into the water and Jesus made a, a, a barbecue on the beach and was cooking fish for them. And Peter goes up to him and he must think, man, what do I say? What do I do? I feel that Peter will more than likely got in the boat and said, I'm finished. I failed my, my, my Lord and Savior and I'm going back fishing. Jesus finds him and he never ever mentions his denial once. 
but he affirms him three times as Peter had denied Christ. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, I know. I, of course I do. And I think that was the transformation that transformed Peter from this proud, arrogant young man into this humble servant of Christ. And I, and I personally think that had he, he spoken at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, without that experience of the denial and the restoration and the humility that came with us, I think he would have taken a lot of the glory for the 3,000 saved, like many, unfortunately, leaders do. But he writes this, and he says here, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I have this picture in my mind. I sort of, when I'm reading the Bible and these guys, I imagine what I want to imagine and see myself in the boat and what it's like and what I would have done. I'm sure I would have done way worse than Peter, but I I have a good laugh at him uh, quite often and so on. But just looking at these, but he says, you know, and I have this picture when there's pride and arrogance um, uh, in our lives. Uh, I have this picture of me saying, God, please help me, please help me, please help me. And he says, speak to the hand. Go and sort your stuff out. But God, but God. <laughs> but he's gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in love. A great song. Well done, guys. He says, all you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Humility is attractive. I'm not talking a false humility that the devil puts on you're a worm and you're no good. No, we are children of the living God. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. But true humility is attractive. And like clothes, you can see it and you can sense it. It's the first thing you notice about people is often what they're wearing. And we've got to wear this cloak of humility. And uh, towards, first of all, one another, it starts in the body of Christ. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You see, the reason humble people spend much time in the presence of God is because they understand that God is the source and the giver of all things, that every breath they breathe is a gift from God, that any greatness they achieve is not from them, but through Him working in and through us. They see the divine hand of God of His grace and providence at work in their daily lives. And understand that God is more responsible for their achievements than they are. In a nutshell, they recognize their absolute reliance on God for all things, including their daily bread. God is the giver of, he gives and he takes away. And he's the one that blesses. And we rely on him. The fact that we live in this beautiful country as we have. I was born in Zimbabwe, and that's been through a 
trials and tribulations and we have brothers in Christ there that struggle and uh, then grew up in South Africa too. And I, I go to Haiti and I go to these places. Um, I love going to third world countries and so on. But when I get back to Canada, if it had a stairwell like the old days from the plane to the, to the, the landing strip, I'd get on my knees and kiss the ground. We are so blessed here. We are so blessed. It is worth praying for. You know, in the Peace Towers, tell there's about 60 scriptures on the, no, there's about 60 scriptures written on the Parliament buildings, mainly on the Peace. 60 scriptures about him having dominion over Canada. Beholding good and how pleasant is when the people dwell together in unity. Our anthem, God, keep our land. Glorious and free. The founding fathers here were godly people. And those prayers of the saints are, are still there. And we are the ones that need to build on those things and believe God for a revival and a breakthrough in our nation. But it starts right here in our own heart. It starts with us. It starts here. We could have the, as much as the presence of God, we can go as deep as we want. He wants us to go. And when we go, we don't be afraid because he's walking with us. An amazing picture. He's wanting us to go deeper still. He loves this nation. He loves every nation. There are people in those nations, godly people in the worst of the worst nations that we might even talk badly about. There are Christians, our brothers and sisters. They are partner churches with us south, south here in places where they're in tremendous fear. Friends of mine, I've been to their churches. We have churches in East LA, Hispanic churches, Chicago, Portland, crying out to God. And they need our prayers. They need our prayers, their brothers and sisters in Christ. And like I say, in South Africa, in Zimbabwe, don't even go there. God is shaking, but God is our source and God is our supplier and he can turn things around in an instant. He says, can a nation be saved in a day? And obviously the answer is, of course it can. God can do anything. He's just looking for us to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face. I'm sorry I'm a bit passionate tonight, but I've had a lot of time thinking about this and God is speaking to me way longer before he's speaking to the people we have the privilege of leading. You see, we see this humility on display in the life of Jesus. I encourage you to read Philippians 2, verse 5 to 11. It speaks of the humility of God. God incarnate. We see that Jesus, in obedience to God the Father in this passage, humbled himself became a man and took on the nature of a servant. The creator of all things became part of his creation. Can you believe that? He willingly died on a cross, taking upon himself the sin of the world, thereby paying for the price for our sins. Why did he do that? So that our relationship with God the Father that was destroyed by our sin could be restored in and through the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
In love, God the Father sent his son to pay the price for our sins. We know this, this, this scripture so well, but I ask you to meditate on it and just think about this and ask God to speak to you through this amazing scripture. There's um, one of the most well-known scriptures in, in the world is John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world. He loves this world. He wants to see people saved and restored. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to condemn the world. God sent his son to save the world through him. God's will is that none should perish. I know there's these um, different theologies on that, that you can lose your salvation and predestination and all of that. And all I can say to you from my heart, because I'm a heart man and I know God's a heart man because it wasn't a rational decision to send his son. It was love, love and emotion. He loved us so much that he sent his son. He couldn't do anything else. A rational decision would have been to nuke the world and start again. He just had to say, gone, and new one. Boom. No, he loved us. He's an emotional. So I connect with God with the heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, not your own understanding. And I've asked people that say, well, God determines who will go to heaven and hell. I said, God is a good father. He says, how much more will the father, Luke 11, if you know how to give good gifts, how much more will the father in heaven give good gifts to those who love him? How much more? A gooder father. So I said, so now you're going to have four kids. Yeah, okay. So which one of those four are you destined to help? Would you like to see go to hell? Of course I wouldn't. Well, do you think God the Father creates people to go to hell? Well, this and this and this and this, this theology. There's way more Theology that says God so loves the world that he gave. He loves the world. His, his, his heart is that none should perish. He's a good father like we are. I'm not going to say, okay, that kid is no good. They can just die. That's what it sounds like. Predestination. But to me, he loves everybody, and he cares for us. And he sent his son not to condemn us, but to save us, the world. God doesn't play, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. His love is constant. He's always there. Amazing. You see, what Jesus did on the very night he was betrayed, Jesus knew that he was about to die. He had prophesied it, spoken about it, and he knew he was going to die on a cross. But what did he do in that upper room? These are his last conversations, more, the most important things more than likely he said. 
is in from John 12 or 13 to the end, to his crucifixion. Most important things he said to them. But what does he do? Not worried about himself. It's not making it about him. It says he humbled himself. He got on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. Even the feet of Judas. Then he broke bread with them and was then led like a lamb to the slaughter. Paul speaks of this amazing love in Romans 5, verse 6 and 7. Paul, known as the apostle of grace, his doctrine of grace is, is absolutely phenomenal. Why did he understand grace? So much because he was a violent man. He said to Timothy one, I was a violent man. I persecuted the church. But because of his great love for me and his rich mercy and grace for me, he rescued and saved me. He understood that God could take a murderous man like him and turn him into a saint. Nobody is outside of the kingdom. Nobody Two thieves on the cross and Jesus. As I was thinking about this a while ago, so if I was in that crowd at the bottom of the cross and I saw Jesus and the two thieves, I would have in my heart then, let's say I was a disciple, known that Jesus is going to be okay even though he's going to die on that cross. But I would have definitely thought that both those thieves went to hell. But we know one didn't. He had a conversation like this. God loves people so much. And he says, just, hey, just remember me. Man. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. We could be, God's going to get to heaven. What the heck are you doing here? He's gracious and compassionate. So this isn't a time of condemnation, this is to spur us on. But this is what Paul, this is Paul's revelation of God's love. Romans 5.67, you can read the, the passage, it's amazing. He says, but he says in these two, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love in this one thing, that whilst we were still sinners, we will, believe it or not, we might have been saved so long we don't remember we were sinners. Whilst we were still sinners, murderers, addicts, fornicators, whatever, Christ died for us, having no guarantee that we would respond to it, his, because free will is the ultimate expression of love. That's why we have free will. If, you, if I went to Deborah and had a, a gun in my hand, I said, listen, will you marry me? She'd call the police, or for sure, or, or beat me on the head, I don't know. But... That's not a way. You see, when I asked Deborah to marry me, I had chosen Deborah before she knew it. 
And when I asked Deborah to marry me, she had to respond and say yes. So the one I chose became my chosen one because she responded to my request. And so this is a divine romance that we're in. God is asking us, we're knocking. He says, well, can I come in? And we can keep the door closed or we can open it. And when we do that, when we went through the Holy Spirit and the conviction, we give our hearts to God, we become the chosen ones. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But it says, uh, uh, and then here, yeah, Christ died for us. I'll, I'll, I think I'll leave it there for now. But what I'd like us to do is um, to worship for a while. And um, there's a table there. Um, we've set it up um, with elements, um, little packets and that. And while we're worshiping, yeah, for communion, and while we're worshiping, if you'd like to partake, get some and, and just pray with your family or on your own. And let's just spend time in God's presence. I hope this has not been overwhelming because it can be. It's something that a journey that I've been on for a while. Myself wanting just to go deeper in God. It's this thing again, and I thank God when, when we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I've been lukewarm. I've been on dry ground. I don't even know where I am in the river, but I am in the river. And I want to go deeper. And I want us to go deeper. And I want this nation to go deeper. So we can just bow your heads for a moment. I'll pray for us. And thank you for the ones that are listening. Father God, slow to anger and abounding in, in love. Father God, where would we be without you in these times? Where would we be with, without your son paying the price, the ultimate price, so that we could worship you in spirit and in truth? Where would we be without God, the Holy Spirit, not in us and upon us and with us? And Lord, your cry is, who will go as you did for Isaiah in Isaiah 6, chapter 6? He's in the throne room. He falls on his knees. The angel comes and touches his lips and cleanses him. And the cry of the Father then goes out. Who will go and who can I send? And Isaiah can only answer one way, here am I, send me, Lord. Lord, we are a gathering, healing, training, sending church. I pray, Lord God, that you'll recalibrate us. Yes, there's lots to be worried about, Lord, but we call to cast our cares upon you, for you care for us. And I thank you and I pray for your peace and your presence, Lord. And if there's anybody here that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray, or has never committed their lives to you, I pray at this very moment that you will touch their hearts. Lord, where my heart has maybe got hardened 
by life or situations. Lord, I pray, Lord God, that you create in me and us a pure heart. That you will renew a steadfast spirit in us. And that you will continue to lead us in the way of the everlasting. We thank you for that, Lord. Church, just stand and worship the Lord.